Welcome to the All of Christ for All of Life podcast, brought to you by Canon Plus. This week's episode is a talk from Stephen Wedgworth called Power and Persuasion from the series The Forgotten Wonder of the World, Christian Humanism and the Reformation. Listen to the full series now on Canon Plus. Okay, if I could have your attention, we're going to get started. Thanks for coming out this morning. So we do have our illustrious speaker, Stephen Wedgworth. I've known Stephen for a long time. He holds an MDiv from Reformed Theological Seminary in Jackson, Mississippi, as well as uh, being the pastor of Christ Church in Lakeland, Florida. Uh, Stephen has helped found a school in Jackson, a classical Christian type school, as well as a number of other things. He's a co-founder of and editor of the Calvinist International as well as directing uh, as a directing board member of the Davenant Trust, a foundation for Christian scholarship. Stephen is married, has two children, and so we're glad to have him with us. One of the most distinguishing marks of our speaker today is that when he was like in the fifth grade, he took guitar lessons from me. <laughs> Way back when in Laurel, Mississippi. I know Stephen. Yeah. We have a Stratocaster, and we're going to test him at the end of the oh, talk, so we'll there. see how he, how he does on that. But I've known Stephen for a long time now. He was ordained in the CREC in 2008. I was part of his panel to examine him, and famously, the question that I asked him, he, he, had, he had, you see, he was so sharp, he had answered every question perfectly, like just a precise theological answer on everything. So I had to stump them. So what could I do? Now, Jared was there, as it turns out. Remember? And do you remember the question that really stumped him? No. <laughs> no, really, okay. Are the Psalms important? Yeah, are the Psalms important? Right? John knows the story. You should prepare for that question. Are the Psalms important? Yes, they're so important. Are they good for you know worship? Oh, absolutely. Okay, start it. Chapter 1 and summarize chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 4, and I'll tell you when to stop. <laughs> it's like uh, he, he, he went a few, and then I said, okay, start at 150 and go backwards. Right? And uh, <laughs> so, anyway, we're really glad to have Steve here, and thanks so much for coming. Yeah, all right. Thanks for having me. <laughs> What um, Pastor Shawbridge neglected to say about our guitar relationship is that I, I, I quit the lessons after about three or four times because he wanted to teach me properly, you know, how to hold it on this leg and play with your fingers and read music. And I just wanted to play punk rock and heavy metal. Um, and so I stuck it out for a couple of classes and then, yeah, I, I quit and went on to form a garage band and make lots of noise. <laughs> Um, well, it's good to be with y'all, and the overall theme of a conference is Christian humanism, and I'll be explaining what that is in more detail uh, at the, the lecture um, following this one. But for our discussion now, I'd, I'd kind of like to hit on some of those themes, but not so much a presentation, me reading a, a speech to you, but to get you guys to participate as well, talk about it. And the title was... Power and persuasion, how to be free men. 
And I'll explain that. The word free men is a play on the concept of the liberal arts. Some of you may know this. Why do we call them the liberal arts? You know, is it just for like Democrats and you know people that drive hybrids? Is that what the liberal arts are all about? Um, well, no. The word liberal, if you go back in history, it's connected to the word liberty, and so freedom. If you read John Locke, for example, he's a classical liberal. That's the idea of uh, the liberal freedom culture. And the liberal arts are the arts for free men. But now there's a twist. In the ancient world, not all men were free men. And no one had any, uh, no one had the slightest inclination that all men should be free men or would be free men. So Aristotle, for example, when he wants to teach the liberal arts, he's only concerned with a certain segment of humanity. You know, the free men will get this, and all the other kinds of men out there want. And does anyone know the particularly um, sort of the, the, the culture and genetical class of men that Aristotle had the least confidence in? You know, the people he thought were just not capable of civilization. Any guesses? <laughs> No, no, no. The guys with blonde or red hair and freckles, uh, you know, and pale skin. The northern tribes, so the Gauls, people up in sort of Norway, and then eventually into England and Scotland. I mean, he thought those guys were hopeless. They are so barbaric and savage from a good cultivated Greek like himself that just don't even try with them, right? I mean, they are basically the servile class. They are not going to be ready for um, our teachings. So it's good to remember how uh, things can change. <laughs> uh, so over the years, it would indeed be those northern tribes who develop and really promote the liberal arts. But then, of course, they thought there were a lot of people that would never be civilized either. So they start saying, you know, those folks down south in Europe, the further south you go, they're really not capable of civilization. So there was uh, their own biases. But uh, this idea of the liberal arts, it was big in the ancient world, and it doesn't die out entirely. You know, the Dark Age theory is somewhat mythical, but it's not entirely mythical. When the Goths sack Rome and sort of uh, Western Europe falls, there is definitely a period where they lose the prominence of liberal arts. And so when Charlemagne comes to the throne, he wants to bring it back. You have the Carolingian Renaissance, and he gets Alcuin to come down from England, and they let's recover some of this stuff. And you have little chippings away trying to build a learning culture again. And then finally, the Renaissance proper hits, um, late 1300s, 1400s, into the 1500s. And now learning is back in a big way. We're discovering texts that were lost. We're learning languages. And then the Reformation hits. The Renaissance and the Reformation are not two different things. You've got to learn this. If you go to a uh, general public school like I went to, those things are going to be totally different. You know, the Renaissance is one lesson, you're done, move on. Reformation is another lesson. They're the same thing. They're sort of a spectrum. Um, but when Luther comes on the scene, he's been studying Erasmus. 
and Lorenzo Valla and some of these other uh, Renaissance thinkers. He's reading Greek and Latin texts, and some things that everyone thought was true and real have been thoroughly exploded when Luther comes to the scene. Has anyone ever heard of the donation of Constantine? It's one of the most famous forgeries in human history. So what is the donation of Constantine? Uh, it's this fake document in which Constantine gives the western part of the empire to the Pope. That's right. And it's presented as a political tree, right? Like, I hereby deed and give to you my empire. And people believed it. And they thought that was real. They thought that was actually real, and it set the standard for political rule in Western Europe for centuries. Yeah, it's just, this is fake news. That's right. It's very good. And so um, Lorenzo Valla, who is, as far as I know, always stayed a Catholic, but he's a Renaissance thinker, he actually discovers this is fake. He's doing the language studies and he says, you know, this doesn't match. Um, they're using language that doesn't fit the times, and this can't be real. And sure enough, it is fake. And so Luther, he's finding this stuff out for the first time when everyone else is finding out for the first time. And so it's, whoa, you know, what if I told you? That kind of a moment, take the red pill kind of experience. And so Luther is revolutionized by his Renaissance experience. And so while we're reading all these things again, let's read the scriptures. Let's go read the scriptures in the original language and see what they say. And before long, Luther's starting to think, you know what, maybe everything I've been taught about the scriptures is, is also not true. And, and there you go, the Reformation happens. So the Renaissance and Reformation is all on a spectrum. It's all connected. And when the Reformers took sort of control of their cities, they instituted schools. This will be another talk that I give. I don't want to repeat myself, but the putting schools into place was essential for the reformers. Luther does it. Melanchthon does it. Um, Bootser and his friend Johann Stern and Strausberg are going to actually be some of the most important school starters. Geneva, they're going to have an academy in Geneva and Heidelberg and then in Scotland and the schools in England are going to be revolutionized. Um, and they were not just... Christian schools, like we think of today, you know, let's just teach some devotion, get people to read their Bible. They were classical schools, full decked out arts and science curriculum. And the reformers tweaked that old view of free men. Because of the reformers' theology, priesthood of all believers, the ability for us equally to have the gospel and be transformed, they, in the desire for all men to read the scriptures, let's don't forget that, every man was expected eventually to be able to read the Bible for himself. The reformers decided that the liberal arts, arts for free men, should be for everyone. Which means, different from Aristotle, you know, these are for the free men and no one else. Now we're saying, you know what, everyone should be able to be in this class of free men. Didn't necessarily mean political freedom like we understand it today, but it did mean intellectual freedom, self-mastery. You should have a knowledge of these things. And it's really fascinating the language they used. So again, Aristotle thought there are people who are not capable of civilization. They're just... 
they're lower down the chain, and that's just the way it's going to be. They're, they're almost like beasts of burden, so to speak. Well, listen to Theodore Beza, first headmaster, if you will, at the Geneva Academy, right-hand man to John Calvin. This is what he says at the opening of the Academy. Men of reason and intelligence will be metamorphosized out of wild and savage beasts. Now, isn't that interesting? Um, Who are the wild and savage beasts at the moment? The normal people, right? (laughs) The average folks all around him. They don't know anything. They're wild and savage beasts. But if you come to the Geneva Academy, you will be metamorphosized and transformed into men of reason and intelligence. So the idea is we're going to make you these free men. And the way we're going to do it is through this cultivation of learning. Classical education, reason, understanding how language works, logic, and rhetoric. That was the capstone of the whole business. And so we're going to be free men through our understanding of this educational paradigm. Now, rhetoric, that's the capstone of the whole classical education, at least back in this time. What is rhetoric? Got some ACCS people. What is it? Oh, wow. You got your work to do here. What is rhetoric? Donald Trump. (laughs) The art of persuading. Good answer, yes. So the Trump answer is a good answer as well because a lot of people hear rhetoric and they think bluster. A lot of talk. That's just a bunch of rhetoric. But really it means using speech in such a way to change people. To move them, to persuade them, and persuade. <laughs> there you go. That's right. Maybe those two are not different. Yes, um, Donald Trump. Um, I've been told that this is not mostly a, a, a Trump crowd today, um, and my church is not mostly a Trump crowd. But Central Florida is. Central Florida is very Trump country, um, and you know, like him or hate him, he he does achieve a lot of his goals. And you got to know that about him. You know, it's not like he's just accidentally bumbling along and things happen. I mean, he really is. A lot of what happens is what he wants to happen, and so he does actually know how to use persuasion. That's right. He he can move people's passions and emotions and uh, towards an action, and that really is rhetoric. Rhetoric is getting people to change to to do something and getting them to do it themselves, right? So my title, Power and Persuasion, power is a little different. Power might be, you know, making them do it. Okay, you try, they wouldn't do it, force them to do it. Persuasion is getting them to do it because they want to do it. Um, And that's really the art of the free man, is knowing how to use power and how to use persuasion and ultimately to impart that persuasion to others. And so the reformers would use biblical metaphors and categories. Um, When you are a child, you need a power relationship, law, order, hierarchy. Um, Think about the book of Galatians. When the heir is a child, he differs hardly at all from a slave. Chapter 3, I believe, um, chapter 4. Paul's talking about the 
uh, use of the Mosaic law and uh, history, what it was for. Um, so this is actually yeah, in Galatians 4, um, 4, verse 1. The heir, as long as he's a child, does not differ at all from a slave, even though he's master of all. But he's under guardians and stewards until the time appointed by the father. That's Paul's metaphor. Then he says, even so, when we were children, we were in bondage under the elements of the world. But when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law that we might receive the adoption as sons. And then the punchline of the book of Galatians is we're, we're sons now, we're adopted, and so we're not under the law. We're, we're free, led by the Spirit. And the reformers would use that as a metaphor for maturity in general. When you're young, you need law. You need guardians, you need people over you. And they give commands and you do them. And you don't argue about it. You don't, uh, I don't know, mom and dad. I don't think I agree with that plan, right? No, <laughs> that's not in the equation. The, the self-expression can come once you're grown up. Um, persuasion, though, is what you're going to have to do with grown-ups. What you're going to have to do with adults. Um, on a socio-political level, that doesn't work out. Unless you're Trump and you can sign an executive order, <laughs> then we're good. Well, <laughs> um, but again, to make that work, he's got to have enough people who like it. You know, if you force something like that on a group of people and the majority don't like it, it won't last. Um, so um, power is necessary, but it can't, av- it can't finally change people and make them want to be the kind of people you want them to be. Power cannot make men free. Only persuasion can do this. And the reformers would tie in a lot of Protestant theology, of course. Uh, We're justified by faith, not works. Faith has got to be a free act. Belief, conviction, and trust. It cannot be coerced. Uh, The Catholic Church... Depending on who you ask, they still believe this. Um, But definitely in the Middle Ages, they believed that religion could and should be coercive. We can make you repent, and they had means to that end. You give an illustration of that. You know, the Inquisition. This is the most famous one. The Inquisition, we think of today, you know, Monty Python, right? No one expects the Spanish Inquisition. But you have to understand the Spanish Inquisition was a branch of the church, and it was directly tied into the doctrine of penance. Anyone here grow up Catholic? All right, do you remember what penance involves? There are, there are three main ingredients to penance. Do you remember Okay, I'm saying the word ingredient, but you know, components. <laughs> well, you tell me, what did penance mean when you were growing up? And then, um, to, yeah, I forget. <laughs> what did you have to do, though? You're talking, you're talking like the confession. Yep, you go to confession. That's right. Your 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 sins priest, and then the priest tells you, say, ten Hail Marys and seven. Right, yes. So they named these steps, I said ingredients, maybe components is the better word, but you've got to have contrition. You've got to feel bad about it. And then you have to confess, and they will give you absolution. But the third step is key. third step is called satisfaction. 
Something has to be done to satisfy the debt. And these days, it's Hail Marys and Our Fathers. But in the old days, it could be much more than that. Pilgrimages, indulgences, or even physical temporal penalties and punishments. Um, a lot of times in the political realm, they would seize your property. You know, they, if the king has fallen into a state of excommunication, the church could take a lot of his stuff. Um, but they could also punish, and the Inquisition used physical punishment. Um, they command you to go on crusade. That was another one they would do. And all of this was tied into the idea that um, it's okay, it's permissible, and even right to coerce the faith. And that is a tool that will change people. How did the reformers look at some of the mass conversions of tribes, which would have been would have been coercion in the way of the Spanish Inquisition, but would have been kind of coercive in the way of the king mm -hmm. the king converting and the rest of the tribe kind of following? So. Oh, yeah, that's a good question. Now, if you read um, the history of Charlemagne, the, uh, even before Charlemagne, the history of the Franks, and then what Charlemagne actually did to the Saxons and other people, there was a lot of forced conversion. That's right. Um, the reformers uh, had a couple of thoughts on that. One, negative. You know, so don't force people to convert you know, at pain of death. I think they're right about that. Um, but they had another idea, which is still very medieval. The king is the head of the body. So corpus, that word uh, we still use. Um, the body politic. And in their day, they believed, and I think that this was true, it's weird for us today to think this way, but most people wanted to be like the king. He had an inspirational quality. He was the father of the tribe. Again, in our day, we don't think this way that much. Maybe in smaller settings, right? If you have a big family, the paterfamilias of the family is esteemed. But that was the way a lot of them thought. And so there was, there was something natural uh, about it when, hey, if the king has converted, we want to know what this is all about. Maybe we want to follow um, and, of course, there's also worldly inspiration, right? Hey, if we can do what he does, we'll get rewarded. <laughs> so there were different things like that. Uh, they weren't, the reformers weren't opposed to state um, control, <laughs> police, guardianship of religion. They were actually all for that. But they didn't think that the king or the state could co coerce your faith. Sometimes it's a fine distinction. They would say, okay, the king's just protecting the conditions for the church. He's not actually coercing your faith. So sometimes you'd wonder if they're pulling it off, if they're really true. But they would try. Um, actually, I, had, I wrote an article um, a little while back on Calvin and the persecution of heretics. And um, you could look that up on the webpage, Calvinist International. And he actually, in that post, I had some quotes from Calvin where he makes his point. He's saying, yes, kill heretics. We're definitely going to do that. So let's don't be unclear about Calvin's view. But he says, but not in order to coerce the heretic to come to faith. That isn't going to do it for him. But more of protecting the social order, the other people out there. We don't want them to be led astray. So, you know, he still is going to kill the heretic, which by our standards today we wouldn't support. But his rationale is different. Yeah. I was just going to say, I think more of a comment too. <clears throat> Even the idea of, you know, the penitentiary, right? Mm -hmm. about pen right? And that idea oh, yeah. of, you know, what is the point of the penal system? Right? Is it to, and we still have that history, even though we don't really think that way, of that, you know, the whole idea of, you know, imprisonment is for that purpose of coercing or... Yeah, he's reformed or, now, yes, right? Yes, exactly. <laughs> you know, trying to convince a person to 
be the same way society yeah. should be. Which it doesn't work, right? Because yeah. right. <laughs> <laughs> you put it in the prison and it does the opposite of that. It, um, so I guess let me, let me bring this to a, a, the main point here. Um, we want to know how to use power. Appropriately, you can't live in a world without power. I mean, anyone who has authority knows this. You got to flex the muscle. You have to know when to make. You got to know when to make threats. Uh, pastor Strawbers and I are talking about the job of the pastor. Sometimes is to spot that troublemaker at the door and you know, halt. You know, <laughs> we're going to have to talk here. I can see there's something happening. Um, That's why I brought Stephen here. <laughs> <laughs> and here's the people I need to see. Uh, But we've got to use power towards the end of persuading people, not as a substitute for persuasion. We have to use physical tools in order to help cultivate individuals who are self-masters, who are in charge of their minds, their wills. And you're never going to do that without also cultivating a, a culture of learning in them. You know, they're going to have to know what's going on. They're going to have to have an appreciation for the history of arts and letters, uh, humanities. And it's going to have to be, um, you're going to have to be leading them in a way that they understand, that they are participating in, that they are getting. And the idea of making free men through the right use of power and persuasion is sort of the goal of the, the Protestant humanist uh, leader. How can I um, influence you people to change and on a corporate, you know, social level, big group of you, not just my kid, but you know, I want a community to change. How can I do that, maintain order, but also promote freedom? This is the complex question of the um, reformed social vision. Luther ends up uh, pretty pessimistic. You know, by the end of his life, he thinks the peasants are fairly hopeless. You know, <laughs> they are no good. The murderous, treasonous, uh, violent peasants just smash them. Calvin is a modified position. He's not a modern American Democrat, but he's more of a Republican mindset. Um, not party, Republican party, but a republic. And you know what office Calvin more or less creates? He's, as far as we know, he's the first one to invent this office, but it's still with us today in the Presbyterian world. Church officer. Elder. And what kind of elder? Ruling elder. Ruling elder is not clergy. He's laity. A ruling elder is a man who may have gone to seminary, but he's not pursuing the pastoral ministry as his vocation. He's got a day job. And ideally, the good ruling elder is in touch with or even represents the general body of the church. And that's why you want him there. So it's not just a clergy-led operation. You are inviting the people into the governance of the church. Calvin institutes this in Geneva. And as far as we know, uh, maybe you know Zwingli and some of those guys were predecessors, but as far as we know, the Calvinistic movement is the first to do that. But, I mean, that term does appear in earlier literature, if I recall, it's in the Bible. Uh, <laughs> okay, yeah, there's a debate about all that, right? Um, 
the word elder is in the Bible, but that it ruling elder and clarifying, okay, he's not this, he is that, that's at least ambiguous. You know, people had been debating that. And in church history, um, when, you know, when, I mean, as far as we know, first to do it, you know, in any sort of recorded church history, right, you'd have to debate whether it's present in the New Testament or not, granted. Um, but, yeah, I mean, in the three and four hundreds, they're not doing that. They've already, if it was that, they've already lost it, you know. And they're doing bishop, priest, and the deacon is an underling of the priest, training to be a priest. And it's clergy-dominated, um, by and large. Uh -huh. um, you know, to, to, to totally out myself, I, I am I am agnostic about the Bible's teaching on church polity. Um, I, you know, I could I could see a couple different directions there. So I think it's within the realm of Christian freedom to choose which one works best. <laughs> um, I would say, though, it's certainly the Old Testament gives us a lot of good principles that the Calvinistic polity continues. Um, obviously, there's the tribal inclusion, head of households, and so yeah, I would um, I, I would be sympathetic to that model, but I I guess I'm I, I just sort of am reluctant to say it's absolutely the one. Um, I'm sorry, let me just make a public service announcement. There's a lot more food, so if you want to pop up quietly and move through the line and get some more, please do so. But the um, ruling elder is really neat because you're introducing non-clergy into the governance of the church. And if we really do believe, and I, I still believe this, uh, you know, you have to be careful what you mean by it and how you use it. But if we really believe the church kind of guards and directs and navigates the rest of human culture and society, then putting someone in charge of the church is a big deal, right? <laughs> You know, if the church is the engine that's going to drive the culture, then whoever's running the church, quote-unquote, they're, they're at, at the driver's seat, they're at the helm. And so to put non-clergy in a position to do that is revolutionary. I mean, it is going to be one of the pieces in the puzzle towards what we now think of as the modern uh, liberal, classical liberal political development, the idea that men should govern themselves, uh, all men are created equal, that sort of thing. Um, the ruling elder is a big part of that. And when you get to Scotland, you got ruling elders, and um, they're actually getting confident to sort of talk down to the magistrates. Say, hey, when you're in the church, buddy... I'm in charge. You're just, you know, you're only in charge out there in the other world. Um, and so you're starting to get this movement of elevating people into positions of leadership that they didn't have before. And a belief that that's good. You want that to happen. And indeed, that's sort of setting a goal for people to um, sort of, uh, yeah, move up into a position of mastery and rulership. Now, what you're saying is this this ruling elder is a lay person, so it's still a part of the people. Mm -hmm. And what, would you make comparisons to the, it's kind of going from another topic, but I guess it's just way, way comparing or seeing it, would be the same as when we look at our founding fathers, when they became involved in government, they were still, you know, John Adams was still a farmer. Mm -hmm. You know, he went, he had, he had to make his living outside of the church. I mean, outside right. of the government. Is, is that the same type of thing that you're saying is happening? Yeah, it's certainly a parallel. Yep. Yeah, the idea of the, the every man, you know, citizen, yep, citizen government. I 
was going to ask this question. Um, so in some ways, Calvin's ecclesiology, or at least the governing of the church, is more radical than the Anabaptist ecclesiology, <laughs> which would have had which would have had a distinction, more of a distinction between laity and clergy than Calvin would have Calvin's rule would have developed. Yeah, the word radical, I guess, is tricky because why we call the Anabaptists radical is they wanted this strict break between you know church and state, and so their church is like a competing commonwealth, and so that's what made them so radical is they were seen as political, you know, upstarts and anarchists. Whereas Calvin wants to work from within the state. I mean, he's his city government and the elder board overlap. You know, those are mostly the same people. Um, so, but in one sense, you're right. Calvin maybe is more democratic. He's more bringing under you know every man kind of people onto leadership. And you got to remember, the ruling elders are going to have a big say in who gets to call the pastor. You know, so even though the pastor is going to be the leader, the ruling elders are a mediating authority that he himself will have to go through and still be held accountable to. I guess if you're calling an elder a ruling elder, were there, in Calvin's um, breakdown, were there other elders? I, I think about a Presbyterian church I attended for a number of years. They had ruling elders and teaching elders. Mm-hmm. So I was wondering, is that more of a modern thing, or did he have, or did Calvin institute, you know, if there's ruling elders, there, it seems that there's probably ought to be others, otherwise they would just be elders. Right. That's, um, you know, I use the word ruling elders because of what you're saying today. We have this distinction, teaching elder and ruling elder. In Calvin's day, they did have a distinction. They just said, you have the minister, the pastor, minister, and then the elder. They wouldn't define it one way or the other, but it was understood that was the ruling elder. So in Calvin's, his layout, you got minister, pastor, and then elder, and then deacon. So he did have that distinction. The reason the PCA has teaching elder, ruling elders, you've had an interesting history to where there was, a, there was a, the Southern Presbyterian Church, which is where the PCA comes from, they actually moved to this idea that all elders are equal, and they didn't want to call the minister pastor some unique status. So the naming of him as a teaching elder is tied up in that debate. Okay, he's an elder, just like we're elders, but he's an elder who teaches. That, that's kind of how they would do it. So it was a desire to get to a, more of a two-office position, but that never really worked. So people joke in the PCA that it's two-and-a-half office. Mm-hmm. I think maybe Snyder, you know, that's complicated over a few years, actually wrote up that in the original church order. Yep. Yeah, wrote it up the two-office view, and that's like the biggest regret of his life. Yep, that's right. <laughs> yeah, he's now three-office. Uh, if you read the old Westminster order of government, so you know the one that's in the standards, it's pretty clear. It's three office. They single out the minister very distinctly, and that's true in the canons of Dort. If you read the church order of Dort, they do the same thing. So, yes, yeah, the modern Presbyterians, they're trying to equalize all elders. So that's why we use that language, teaching elder, ruling elder. But functionally and practically, they revert back. You know, the teaching elder, he's the pastor. Everyone knows it. And they're going to defer to him, usually. Um, so, um, to bring this all back around, um, the making of free men was a core component of reformational leadership. We want to elevate our people towards liberty, at least of themselves. Again, they're not... 
um, not all the way to the American founding fathers model, but we want them to be free men. And how are we going to do this? And this is where the reformers were, I think, a little more realistic than some of our sort of Disney stories today. Um, it's not just going to happen. These guys aren't just naturally going to self-civilize here. <laughs> they don't just have to look within and trust themselves and they'll flower into free men. No, no. If you just leave them as they are, they're going to be savage beasts. So you're going to have to do something. And more than just evangelism, that's another trap. So we'll just give them the gospel and they'll, that'll do the trick. Well, um, if we define gospel correctly and have a good thriving community and, you know, we're promoting holiness and sanctity, true. But if just give them the gospel means convert them to Jesus, period, that's also insufficient. And, of course, at the time of the Reformation, most everyone around would have been a Christian, you know. Uh, they would have, uh, of one variety, have been baptized and joined the church. And so you're going to have to do a little more than just get them to become Christians. You're going to have to have the gospel properly understood, a free gospel, because if the gospel's not free, then what's the point of anything else? But a free gospel plus cultivation of the classical arts, cultural, societal maturity and learning. You've got to have both of those together. And the... <clears throat> the conviction of the Reformation was that you wanted that to be true on a communal level. And when you get to England especially, this plays out in the domestic household. We've got to raise our children. We've got to teach them this stuff. And probably the person who's going to be doing a lot of that teaching is going to be mom. How is mom going to teach, you know, little, little Susie, Ovid and Virgil and Homer, uh, Thucydides, uh, how is she going to do any of that? Well, you have to teach mom. Mom is going to need to have the tools of learning. And this was a really ambitious uh, project. And, I, you know, I don't think that it was successful uh, overall. There were pockets where it was, pockets where it wasn't. But we're wanting to do this. We're wanting to promote this vision on a social level, a church level, a domestic level. And that was the vision. And the conviction was, if you do that, you will be teaching your people how to be free. And so I would hope that today, uh, in our culture, in our church world, uh, with these lost tools having been recovered and restored, we have the potential to cast this vision again. And I would love for our churches to have the same attitude, how to use power appropriately to persuade people to be free men. This is something we need to learn how to do in our churches, in our um, families, and in our, our community life. It won't happen just by bossing people around. This is the trap. <laughs> uh, little Johnny or Susie's not doing what they want to do, so you just make them do it. Well, okay, you have to do that for a while. I understand. Three, four, five, six, maybe up until the teenage years. Uh, I'm not sure. Uh, my kids are still young. But, um, but eventually, you're going to need them to want to do it. That's the hook. That's the key. How can we make that happen? So you're going to have to understand how to persuade. 
Same thing in the church, you know. If the elders of this church just rule with an iron fist, and they silence all dissent. <laughs> they they might keep things running, you know. It might the church might still be there, but it won't be an actual healthy, thriving Christian community. You won't actually want to show up on Saturday morning to sit around here, right? Um, and probably a lot of us have friends, family members, who grew up in authoritarian, abusive, fundamentalist churches, and the minute they could get out, they did, right? You know, making your kids read Rush Dooney's Institutes of Biblical Law is not <laughs> going to make them love the church. Now, having them read it and then being nice to them and having good, entertaining conversations, setting an example where they get why that stuff's important, that can work. But just hitting them over the head with hardcore theology is not going to do it. And I think a lot of our churches in the CRC have seen successes and failures along that kind of spectrum. Now, we've seen a lot of refugees from fundamentalism. And to recover a Reformation vision, I think, is a help to see why some of that is a dead end. Um, homeschooling can be great, but we all know there's the stereotype of the sort of authoritarian, um, sort of hive mind, we just all have to do the same thing, dress the same way. Um, again, the, the art of persuading people to want to do something on their own is often often lost. They're in uniform. My kids can't even afford to be dressed the same. Um and even things, here's a, here's a concrete example of how I think persuasion is really interesting and working in new ways. Um, we complain about the kids these days, right? They don't know how to take care of themselves. They don't know how to grow up to be men. One of the successful... <laughs> One of the very interesting things that's happened on the internet is you have a revival of masculinity. There are a lot of variations of this, right? And some of them are silly. Um, some of them are problematic even. But there's this interesting webpage. I recommend it. The Art of Manliness. You guys seen this webpage? Oh, absolutely. I learned how to shave from The Art of Manliness. They had a whole thing, how to shave like your granddad. Uh, and it recommends, you know, the straight razors, your safety razors. Best decision I've made. Saves a lot of money, too, by the way. <laughs> but The Art of Manliness is a great webpage because it teaches people stuff you would laugh about. Like, you got to teach a guy that, you know, how to tie a tie, how to do the job interview, you know, how to, I saw one the other day, how to arrange a family meeting meaning mom, dad, and the kids talk about what needs to happen for the week. And you can laugh about that. Okay, people have to be taught that. But you know they do have to be taught that. They don't just learn how to do that. And if, it's, if the way you teach them is dad sighs, takes a deep breath, <sighs> really, we've got to go over this again, you just kind of harangue the people about it, they're not going to do it. You know? <laughs> they're not actually going to say, okay, Dad, I like that. I'll keep that with me. And so what the art of manliness does is it's kind of presenting these really elementary features of culture and civilization to young men as a goal, an ambition, something they should be able to achieve for themselves. And it inspires them, and it has a nice packaging. You know, They have a good aesthetic that appeals to men. And it's 
it, it is having an impact. You know, I meet a lot of guys who, yeah, I learned how to do that. I can tie a tie now. I, I know what I need to do for a job interview. And they're having goals that your grandparents would applaud, but a lot of your grandparents couldn't figure out how to actually impart. Right. I, I, I was, the comment I was going to make was it almost seems like because we've had that generational separation now over the last couple of, of generations where, you know, almost like what you were talking about earlier with Luther and setting up the schools and everything, it's like, oh, my gosh, you know, we're almost learning this stuff. So it's almost like it, it's filling a void there that shouldn't be there. You almost shouldn't need that website. Right. But because of what, like, you but do. You do. Thing, but well, it's almost like they want to put themselves out of business. It's like yep. we shouldn't be teaching you this. Your parents should be teaching this. Your grandparents yep. should be teaching this. And hopefully, and that is this thing in the day. I mean, they don't really have a generational aspect of it, but that's almost that, that value added that the church should be adding to go and be saying, you know, yes, these are good things, but mm -hmm. but you shouldn't be going to a website to learn how to do it. <laughs> so you're saying that the next Sunday school rotation, we're going to have a shaving, a shaving lesson. Yeah, well, he can't. I was going to press the shaving thing, but uh, we'll, 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 Part of the why that webpage works, though, and I think we want to be keen to observe this, because it is a webpage. Mm. And you or Johnny or whoever found it themselves. Mm. And that's actually part of what makes it effective. Is that, you know, have you ever had this experience when you're in high school or teenager and you're like, you found this new band you really like. They're into them. And you want your friends to like them, too. So you got to these guys. Friends are like, oh, whatever. And then, like, a week or two later, they find that band independently and love them. And they're telling you, hey, you got to hear this band, right? I told you about them. They're... <laughs> there is something real about that, right? People have to think that... People have to think... I wanted this. I found this. <laughs> and so we do have to figure out how to use that. Obviously, there's abuses, and you got to harness it. You know, people do need to get over some of that and just accept authority. But we've got to hook people's affections and desires and aspirations. We've got to learn how to throw things out there and make them want it. I was going to say, maybe this is even more important in what we could, what we see today as a kind of a fractured world, mm -hmm. that there's not a, you know, we're sometimes, you know, um, we're just almost done with Yuval Levin's Frac The Fractured Republic, mm -hmm. and it's a book about, basically the, the, the message I've drawn from it is the culture war, that, like if you're trying to fight a culture war to get back to a monolithic Christian culture, that might happen, but it's not going to happen anytime soon because we don't even have a culture. Right. We have all these little pockets of things. Mm -hmm. So persuasion, persuasion really comes to the forefront at that point um, to show other people not that not that this is not that this is a truth that needs to be done monolithically, mm -hmm. but that what you're doing is good. Yep. So is that is that kind of maybe one of the applications of what you're saying? Absolutely, yeah. That's a, that's a great point because um, some of the challenges, right? When we want to teach people to do stuff, you just fall into uniformity, right? Do it like I do it, <laughs> and that has its limitations. So yeah, you got to be comfortable with variation. With you know, you you want to cast a vision for your children that has room for them to move a little. You know, they might go this direction a little to the right, a little to the left, and you have to have done it in such a way that that's okay for you. You're comfortable, and you're not worried that they're going to 
go so far off track because they don't have any principles. Um, but you've got to have some wiggle room. You've got to have some variety. You've got to have differentiation. So, yeah, I think that that's true. Um, yeah, culture has got to be big and rich. <laughs> There's got to be a lot of rooms in the house, to use the C.S. Lewis analogy. Um, and that's, that's, a, that's, a, that's a skill of leadership <laughs> that we've got to learn. And you talked about you know, the, the long-term benefit of, of I'm actually just reading Influence, the, um, the Psychology of Persuasion by Robert Calvini. Mm -hmm. and, and in there, he did a lot of studies. And the, the interesting one was a kind of tying to where you're at. Is like we can persuade people not to do something, or we can get people to not to do something. So they had done the study with like 25 kids, you know, Six to six years old-ish. I don't remember the exact age. They put him in a room with um, five toys, and and there was one toy that was substantially more attractive than all of the others, and and told the, the kid, you may not touch that toy. You may not play with that toy, and if you do, there will be pain. You know, so so you're going to have a punishment for that. And then they leave the room, and and. and 24 out of 25 did not touch it. Only one kid touches it. And then they, then later on they tested this uh, to see in, in, a, in a different environment how many people would play with it later on when they had the opportunity. And like 75% of them gravitated towards what they were not allowed to do under pain, uh -huh. under threat of pain. It's so like 75 But then they went and did it again where it wasn't under pain, it was actually under, uh, I'm going to be disappointed in you. Mm. So instead of I see. the threat being on me, that it's actually me wanting to please you that's a and good. me working for the other person. Yeah. Exact same result on 24 of them did not touch it um, under that. So, so the short term result was exactly the same. No problem. Kid did as told. But then they tested it later on, and only and after they were allowed to touch or play with it, only about thirty percent of them did later on. Interesting. So, so it was interesting that the short-term yeah. result that we see and we look at so often is a little scary because we get the same result, so we right. tend to do this. It doesn't really matter which we did. Yeah, it worked. But it was a long. So are you saying God should have told Adam and Eve, I'll really be disappointed in you. But you know, that, I mean, there are just observable truths of this. You know, yelling at your kids will get short-term results, right? But maybe long-term loss. If, you know, after 10, 15 years, your kids think, oh, mom and dad are just angry people that yell at me all the time. You know, that's not a win. <laughs> so it, there, is, it is if you apologize. Uh, well, right, I don't mean to say like we don't ever yell, obviously we do, but yeah, you go and talk to them about it, you apologize, you make sure they understand, yeah, I think that's really good. Um, and so we've got to master this art, and it's going to have to involve the skills of classical learning, all the things that make learning work in the, in the school, um, inspiring imagination and teaching them well, broad range of knowledge, how people done it in the past. That's all going to also, those are the same kind of tools for parenting, for leadership in the church, for people at, at your job. Um, they maybe can't all go to a classical Christian school, 
though that would be a great goal, is if that became more normal, um, if people had these tools comfortably in their minds, um, that would be a great help. That would be a way to bring them to this maturity, and we want to start, yeah, by example, with creating this culture. Doug Wilson uses the word loyalty for this concept, you know, teaching uh, loyalty to your people. You know, you love your parents and their parents and where they're from, and even if you might have differences and criticisms, that's all within a sphere of loyalty and affection. And I think that's yeah, so key, and so you've got to model it. You've got to like your parents or where you came from, even if you're disagreeing with parts of it. So you have to do that in a humble, respectful way and then kind of cast that picture for your kids to see. Uh, try to make it attractive and inspirational. And, you know, that, that, is, that is the big challenge, though, is to actually hook them. Well, and the, I think what you just said there is pretty key, too. Is the, the journey has to be joyful mm -hmm. as well. So yeah. it, can't, it can't just be, you know, this is the... This is the mission of our family, and we're going to lock everything down, and you know we're going to we're going to crucify everything joyful in order to get this mission done. Oh yeah, because it's too long. It's too long a mission. Absolutely. And they you you stick with things that are you stick with things that are not just good, but you perceive them as good, and you you enjoy participating. In them. Oh yeah. Yeah, cultures of joy are huge. You know, be singing, be feasting, have fun with your kids. Uh, <laughs> I got in a, um, a fight with a, um, an ACCS board member once at, a, at an ACCS conference, Association of Classical and Christian Schools, because Doug Wilson said in a talk there, if your kids don't love your standards, yes. lower your standards. Oh, yeah, famous line. And right? I, said, I said, ah, see, and he said, that's not what it means. 
I said that is that actually is what it absolutely is. that you can't you, if you think you can go from here to Valhalla in one just steep jump mm -hmm. you're not going to do that you've got to find a place of compromise where your kids enjoy the life that they're leading and you can tolerate it yeah yeah and the key to do that is you're not giving up on that final goal you're, you're lowering standards for now in order to raise them later once you've got people back. And I do think that's huge. How do you communicate that in such a way that's not compromising a moral? Yep. It's not sacrificing a principle. That's where, you know, there's an art to learning how to do this. Yeah, but. so you only have three children out of wedlock, so the next generation is trying to get it down to two. <laughs> <laughs> right. That's, that's not right. That's not the vision. That's yeah. correct. Um, so. Um. I thought it was interesting the way you started to talk about talking about the importance, the apparent importance that education was to the former. Mm -hmm. In fact, when you were saying that, I'm thinking I'm hearing Arnie Duncan and Betsy DeVos and all the modern people talking about how important education is the answer to everything. Mm -hmm. And so I don't necessarily hear you disagreeing with that, but the reason for the education that they were talking about is different than the reason for the education that is that is today. So mm -hmm. then it would have been for personal freedom yep. based upon... And to read the scriptures. Right. That's, that's a that big was, chunk right, of it. Right. Yeah. And, and the way to do that was getting to know God better. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And that way, which is not what we had yeah. today. Right? The modern educational system, um, you know, and Rush Dooney is actually very good about this in his book, The Messianic Character of American Education. Um, the goal of that was sort of self-improvement and, you know, human, uh, helping humans take a step forward in evolution, so to speak, but all in materialistic categories, you know, all in purely self-interested, pragmatic, physical terms. And the reformers, it was always integrated with a spiritual reality. Uh, the knowledge of God and the knowledge of self are interrelated. Calvin's Institute starts off this way. The more you learn about God, the more you learn about you. And the more you learn about you, the more you learn about God. And so this educational project was always tied into the spiritual one. And when you break those apart and make those separate, then yes, you get off track. You get weird ideas and go in the wrong direction. But yeah, this classical, it's classical Christian schooling. You know, you're going to be reading this stuff, interacting with the scriptures, interacting with other Christian thought over the years, and plugging it into a unified story. It strikes me that one of the things about that is the doctrine of the perspicuity of scripture. Yep. Right. Which means you have to read, you know, you have to think, you, you know, you have to use these tools, yeah. which really are the result of this sort of learning yeah. experience. The Bible both is and is not an easy book. Yeah. You can read the Bible and get the main highlights. Jesus died for your sins. 
God is real, you need to repent. I mean, that's, it's all going to stick out pretty clearly. You don't have to be a genius to see that. But there's a lot of intertextual stuff going on. And there's images and parallels and repeating themes and um, fascinating rhetorical devices. Um, you know, when Jesus tells the parable of the prodigal son, you got to make sure to back up and read the beginning of that whole series because there's actually three parables in a row. There's the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the prodigal son is really the lost son. You know, he's the third in the series. And then when the prodigal son comes home, you can't stop that parable. This is why children's Bibles are so terrible. You know, they, in the parable, when the prodigal son returns and rejoices, there's a whole second half of that parable, right? The older brother gets mad and complains about the fact that dad let the prodigal come back. That's and really the point. That's the point. Yeah. That's the main point. That's the Presbyterian. Yeah. And, the, 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 the and so, and then when you finish that, you go, okay, the main point is that angry older brother. Go back to the beginning of the chapter. Who is Jesus actually talking to? A bunch of Pharisees who aren't comfortable with the sinners and the Gentiles and the prostitutes coming into the fellowship of Jesus. And so you go, whoa, the, the angry older brother is the Pharisees. And Jesus is talking to the Pharisees. And just sort of all clicks. Whoa. And so that's an example like it took a little it takes a little time to see that. You gotta learn some of the tips of rhetoric and storytelling, but wow, when that comes together you go, that's the big idea. Um, and this might be better answering in a broader setting so if you want to put it on. Mm-hmm. What is our end exactly time, by the way? Thomas, you should probably end in about 10 minutes and give people a chance to transition. <laughs> yep. About 24, 10 o'clock. So it's, um, it's 9.19 at the moment. Oh, I'm looking at that clock. That clock is... I'm sorry. That's for a moment. So you at least have time. time. Uh-huh. That's, the, that's the clock Greg used to get the places on time. Oh. Uh-huh. So, <laughs> so you, you're, talking, you're talking about... Um, amongst God's people and the communities of our churches represented here, that this kind of we need to we need to raise up our children. We need to be the kind of people who are pious, rational, persuadable people. But how do? We, but and, and we just we can describe that as classical learning. Mm-hmm. But we don't. A lot of times when we think about classical learning. You think about that coming in, especially, you know, out of the, uh, the Greek tradition. Mm-hmm. Okay, so, but we know if that's really God's vision for humanity, we wouldn't just see it in the Greeks. We should see it in the Old Testament as well. So, do you see? How do you see the parallels with what we would call classical learning mm-hmm. as something that's foundational, not just in the kind of, kind of Reformation time frame or the New Testament time frame, but back even into the Mm-hmm. Um, it's a great question. Um, I'm not sure that um, that in a lot of church history, especially the Reformation earlier, they were worried about, well, we only see it in the, in the pagans. we got to find it in the Bible as well. A lot of times they didn't feel that burden. You know, right. They were much more comfortable just taking the two together. Um, I do think we have interesting 
stuff in the Bible, though. Um, what I read out of Galatians, that idea when the child is young, he looks like a slave, and he's going to have rulers and guardians and laws. But when he grows up, he is going to be free. Um, the adoption of sons, by the way, this would be a whole other conversation, but don't think modern adoption when you hear that. Think Julius Caesar adopting Augustus. So the guy's already grown up, and then he gets adopted, which is an honorary gesture to impart to him your legacy in the state. So it's not necessarily a little child who didn't have a parent, you're going to take him in. It's more of blessing someone who has reached maturity. And that can throw people for a loop. That would be a whole conversation. But uh, that is the classical teaching of adoption, is a wealthy, established leader imparting his goods and legacies to one who has now come of age. And so once you go through the stages of childhood and slavery and guardianship and you grow up into maturity, you're given a status of free friend and partner. Jesus says this to his disciples, right? No longer do I call you my servants, my disciples, but now I call you friends. So that's a blessing. Um, that's a, a sort of an upgrade, so to speak. Uh, we will, when we get to, well, you know, depending on your exegesis here, when we get to heaven, when we get to the new heavens and the new earth, we will know God face to face. And what's the significance of face to face? You look right at them. They are appropriately, you know, matching you. Uh, friends, counselors. Isn't that incredible that God would invite us, his human creations, to a position of counselor, friend? So I think you see these themes in the Bible. Um, it's a pattern that is laid out for us in an eschatological achievement. Do, do maybe... I was thinking you might go a different direction. So, what, what do you what do you think about maybe the Old Testament, the Jewish emphasis on reading? Mm -hmm. You know, when you think about a, a bar mitzvah, mm -hmm. the, the, the young man stands up to read from the scrolls. Oh yeah. And uh, um, you know, of course, in the in the priestly or the scribal tradition, the scribal tradition really more, you see a lot of argument going on about the. Talmud. Of course, if you want to read Deuteronomy, if you want to read the Torah, it invites you into argument and discussion. Mm -hmm. It doesn't settle every issue for you. It, it just gives you a landscape to kind of start an argument. Mm -hmm. So, do, do you see those things as, well, I, I kind of see those things as kind of precursors to what we would see as a full-blown, you're talking about a full-blown kind of classical liberal arts approach. Mm -hmm. But that some of those things kind of, they existed pretty pretty well in the Old Testament as well. Yeah, well, the, the fact of the Word, you know, the fact that God puts His Scriptures in the Word and that's an anchor is already a literary activity. Um, we're going to have to read. We're going to have to understand this stuff. Absolutely. Uh, law involves debate, legislation. Absolutely. So, yeah, I think that's definitely there. Um, the Hebraic religious ideal has always been connected with with books <laughs> you know we, we take that for granted now but that actually was unique well I would imagine if we could I, I don't know if there are any kind of statistics on this but if we could see the, the literacy rate amongst male and female Jews in the Old Testament versus other tribes that they that would have been around them I would imagine theirs would have been staggeringly 
higher mm -hmm. than the other tribes just because the, the word was so offensive. Yeah, it would be interesting to see, yeah. yeah. I don't know. Well, I think you could probably um, you know, squeeze out of the Old Testament everything that you would want in the Greco-Roman you know, liberal arts, right? Mm -hmm. You get wisdom, you know, obviously there's great, you, you get all of the persuasive stuff, I mean, that's all the way through prophetic stuff. You mm -hmm. get and come, let us reason together. Right. You know? you yeah. You certainly, you know, you have pretty much the base <clears throat> of all the stuff, and that's why we know that Plato got all his ideas from the Bible. Ah. <laughs> and the way I, I guess I've always seen it is almost like, and again, the you know the criticisms of the classical versus classical Christian education, right? Almost seems like you know the Greek philosophy was almost like a democracy. Well, you know, reading the, the Old Testament was more of a constitutional. Republic. You could still have a debate, but the debate came from a written authority, whereas over on the Greek side, it was, you know, reason was the highest standard. So there really wasn't any other standard other than... Well, and also on the Greeks, like I said, they just didn't think reason was for everybody. Right. That's also part of the equation, right? Whereas the Bible is, the, the, yeah. the, the Torah, you know, was. For Universal the mandate. Bible. Yep, everybody's got to get in on that. Yeah. yeah. Well, I don't know, I was thinking about If we had more time, I would, I would I would reject everything you just said. So <laughs> I'm sorry. I love you. I love you, but yeah, I would I would take issue with a lot of that. Um, um, yeah, there are there are issues in the Greeks, but I I would I would want to be real careful about all of that. Ah. Oh man. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, there's a persuasion now purely by the passions, right? We're going to disregard the argumentation phase or so minimize it. So, yeah, we've fallen. There are some people who do know it, like the Trumps of the world in our 
sort of using it towards their ends. Um, but yeah, it's turned into more of a, let's just sort of manipulate people by their passions, um, and we're not engaging them. They're not going to engage us back critically. So that's part of our problem today. It's sort of what marketing is based on, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, everything is... Yeah, but, well, culturally, I mean, that's... Alan Bloom's book, um, is Alan Bloom? Uh, he's got, there's two, Closing the American Mind. That's Alan Bloom. There's also a Harold Bloom. I always mix up their names. His, <laughs> the Closing of the American Mind is really good on some of this stuff because he talks about this, how, you know, it really is just kind of turning into a visceral, follow your passions, manipulation model, even in the schools. That's what we're doing now. And we're losing that older sense of critical engagement. Um, it's funny that he takes issue with like the Walkman. So you read that and you kind of roll your eyes. But it's true that if you just immerse yourself in nonstop noise, you know, music and movement and explosion and lights, and it's hard to stop and read a book at length. Because you're just used to constant movement and motion and change. Um, I struggle now. I'm used to, okay, I read about a page, I need to click a new link. That's a new nice thing about the article, man. I think that's something that yeah. no long articles on there. Right. <laughs> new tab, new link. Um, to sit down with a 300, 400 page book, and I'm a guy who, you know, I have a master's degree, right? I still am like, this is hard now. This is not as easy as it used to be because I'm, I'm trained to go do something else now. So, yeah. all right, we'll go. I see the time, so we got to wrap it up. Yeah, the end of the year, but maybe if there's any last question or so. Well, hey, this has been really good. I've enjoyed it. Hope that you did as well. And uh, we'll pick, I'll be picking up on a lot of these same themes in the other talks. So if something comes to mind, you know, ask away again. Those Q and A times. So. All right. Thank you. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to check out the full series, The Forgotten Wonder of the World, Christian Humanism and the Reformation, available now on Canon Plus.